Welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature former Bull Center and now media analyst Will Perdue. This year is the third year of a four-year contract, right? This is, in our opinion, as analysts, this is the big year. This is when this team, hey, we're running it back. The core is still the same. We've added a few small pieces, as you talked about, and Dragic and Drummond. But now we got to see is, can, can Billy get those guys can you get that extra 10% out of them on every single night? Did you know Will Perdue possesses four championship rings? He got three with the Bulls and one with the San Antonio Spurs. Pretty impressive for a guy who mostly played a backup role during his 13-year career. But Perdue also played with, yet had to endure, the wrath of Michael Jordan, which included some rather physical practices. He was the SEC Player and Athlete of the Year at Vanderbilt, was traded for Dennis Rodman, and his son might be the biggest lacrosse player you will ever come across. So, Will Perdue, tell me a story I don't know. Well, George, first of all, thank you for having me, and also thank you for your persistence. Um, if many of your listeners don't know, just like catching a fish, when George gets his hook into you, he's reeling you into the boat. It's part of the course. That's okay. That's what makes you good at what you do. So you should be very proud of that. But I think what people don't know about me is, is that growing up in the state of Florida, I was born in Florida, raised in Florida, went to school in Florida, and it was in a small town called Merritt Island which for those that don't know, I refer to as the Kennedy Space Center's right there. I Dream of Genie was based off uh, that area because of the Kennedy Space Center. And then that's when people are like, oh, I know where that is. 45 miles due east of Orlando. You also have to remember back in the 80s, I was born in 1965, Florida was known for two sports, baseball and football. And basketball was a sport that if your school even had a gymnasium, which my elementary school, which was one through six, did not even have an indoor gymnasium, I technically didn't start investing time thinking about playing basketball until I was 13 years old. I went through the ranks of playing baseball and football, just like every other kid that played any sport in the state of Florida, because that's what kids in Florida did. I mean, you think about the biggest event at my elementary school growing up was the Turkey Bowl every year. And what the Turkey Bowl was, was a flag football game between the sixth graders and the fifth graders on the last day of school, right before Thanksgiving. 
But as you were growing up, your whole goal was is to be good enough so that you could play on the fifth grade team or the sixth grade team as one of the participants in the Turkey Bowl. We did actually have outdoor basketball, but because people would just jump up and grab on the rims to try to bend them, not actually shoot on them or do pull-ups, if they did have nets, they were the chain link nets, which because they were chain link, then people would jump up and grab those as well and hang from them until they eventually, the eyelets on the steel rims would break. So as I entered seventh grade, a kid by the name of Tony Longa moved to uh, Merritt Island because his dad was an engineer, got a job at the Kennedy Space Center, but he was from Virginia. And he had been playing basketball since he was five years old. We became fast friends and actually taught me how to play. Now, again, a small town, four elementary schools fed into two junior high schools, which fed into one high school. And as my interest for the game grew, my dad helped me build a, my own goal to put on top of the garage. And the backboard was three quarter inch plywood. We had no problem building this, putting it on the garage. That was my project. That's how I learned to play. And then Tony would come over to my house because I had a nice size driveway and we would do ball handling drills and shooting drills. And in seventh grade, I had just learned He's now teaching me how to play. I did not make the set. And in, in middle school, you had a seventh and eighth grade team. I didn't make the team as a seventh grader. Well, how, even, tall, how tall were you then? Um, I remember in sixth grade, I was 6'1". And that was the other thing. I was always one of the tallest, never the tallest, until I got into high school. High school is where I had the big growth spurt. But... I go through that whole process. I make the seventh and eighth grade team as an eighth grader. And the only reason I get to play is because I'm not that good. But the rule was on the seventh and eighth grade team, you had a unit of seven guys that played the first and third quarter. And you had a unit of seven guys. So that means 14 guys on the team that played the second and fourth quarter. So I was on, I made the team. It was on the first and third quarter team. And I was like the seventh guy. I hardly ever played, but still played. And then in ninth grade, I made the team, but like a lot of that had to do with my height. But the biggest thing about that I was proud of at the time was I think in ninth grade, I scored like throughout the whole season, I scored like four points, six points, but somehow I ended up with three pitchers in the, in the school yearbook. That's what I was so thing. proud about. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> Hey, I got three pitchers in the yearbook, you know, in ninth grade, I'm about six, two. Skinny as a rail, wearing a basketball player, wearing elbow pads and knee pads. So about how awkward that looked. And uh, also wearing glasses with uh, the George Mikan strap around the back. Very gawky looking. Uh, that's a great way to put it. And also <laughs> long stringy hair. You know, it just, it was, it was, as I go back and look at it, it just was not a good look. But <laughs> I, I was, I was dealing with what I was given. It's what we all have to deal with. You are currently the analyst for the Bulls pre and post game show, which includes Jason Goff and Kendall Gill. And it really works. It's three guys with very different personalities who know what they're talking about, but it's also an entertaining watch. Why do you think it works? 
Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the different personality aspect. I didn't know much about Jason when he got the job. Um, I think he's a guy that's very knowledgeable. He has his own little style. He has a, a good personality. Then you throw Kendall into the mix, who, you know, I think we work well together because of our approach and how we look at the game. Our, our opinions are different at times. Dalen Terry, the Bulls' first-round pick, oh, at don't the do 18th this. pick. Don't do this too old. He's making more money in the first year than I made as the 11th pick in my first contract, wow. which was $5 million. Hey, but inflation, though. you got to make sure that <laughs> we, we, we make room for inflation. Yeah, I know KG ain't trying to. You know, I just think the biggest thing is none of us of the three feel like we're better than the other. You appear to really enjoy it. So why did you get into this racket in the first place? When I went to Vanderbilt, I started out in engineering. Why? Because my dad was an engineer. He worked at the Kennedy Space Center. I thought that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really know any better. That did not go well and immediately changed my major. And I got to know a, a professor by the name of Kassan Kowalczyk, who was the head of the communication department. So he said, why don't you take a, a speech 101 class and an economics class, take a bunch of electives, figure out which direction you want to go and, and reboot and start over. Took a couple uh, communication classes, speech 101, loved it. Um, you know, hey, I can take this and I can get into television I can get into radio, I can get into uh, advertising. And as I was playing and I had people like Robin Roberts who started in Nashville interviewing me, you know, after games and you know, dealing with uh, media personalities, I kind of started looking into it and I did an internship at a TV station, a radio station and realized, hey, I really enjoy this. And that's how I got into it. And then as I was playing and I got towards the end of my playing career, I realized, hey, you know, I'm still only going to be 30 something when I retire from basketball. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? So um, when I got traded to San Antonio, uh, those couple of years, the Bulls, you know, were still in the, in the playoffs, made it all the way to the finals, right? So I was still living in Chicago in the offseason. So I came back and, you know, reached out to Sports Channel back then and uh, did studio, volunteer. I mean, I didn't get paid. I came up, came back to Chicago and be like, hey, could you guys use another analyst? I'd love to come in and work with Johnny Red Kerr and, and those guys, you know, talking about the Bulls, I was hooked and, and I realized, hey, this is enjoyable. But the best part was I could watch the game, talk about the game, and then I'm done. I'm not emotionally attached. Um, I could just let it go. And it's kind of amazing as I've gone through the years and now, you know, going into, I don't even know what year with NBC Sports Chicago, I find myself on numerous occasions, George, watching games again, because I, I DVR all our shows, all the Bulls games, and I go back and I review them and I look at it. What can I do better? And, you know, to make sure I didn't miss anything on specific plays, you know, I'll go back and watch a game again the next day, you know, because I'm looking for something maybe to break down in a, in a show we're going to do in two days. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but you also do work for ESPN and Westwood One's coverage of the NCAA tournament. I'll bet you that's a kick, too. It really is, because um, 
as much as I love the NBA, as much as I love the Bulls, there honestly is no better time for fans, former players, alumni, whatever, than March Madness. And every year when I get to do the NCAA tournament, I will catch myself on numerous occasions being like, I get paid to sit at half court of a, of a sweet 16 game, an elite eight game. This is, this is the ultimate, this is the pinnacle for them, you know, but then you, during the game and, you know, time during a timeout, when they go to commercial break, you turn around and you see the fans and they're all wearing the school colors. And, you know, you talk to them when you see them in the hotel elevator and they've saved up all year to follow their team to the NCAA tournament. And you're just like, man, I just, it's sometimes it's hard to believe that I actually get paid to do this. He drives, he steps back, fade away three. Good! Unbelievable! Another one from Clyde. He's got 27, and we're tied at 80. 30 seconds remaining. And Grant Williams was right there. Grant Williams for Tennessee knew that Ryan Klein was going to shoot that basketball. When Ryan Klein stepped back, he took up the space. When Ryan Klein tried to put it on the deck and go by him, he did a nice job of staying in front of him. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. This podcast will drop October 4th, a couple of weeks before the regular season begins. The Bulls made dramatic strides last season, Will. They were a lot of fun to watch, but injuries really hampered them, particularly the one to Lonzo Ball, who just underwent another surgery, so who knows how long he'll be out. How difficult will this be for this team to overcome that and take the next step? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, that's a 9. And the reason why I say that is... It was either on the 11th or 12th of September that Alex Caruso put out a tweet that with Alonzo Ball and I on the floor together, Chicago was a top five defensive team, meaning that at the front of the, the defense was Alonzo Ball and Alex Caruso. That is very similar to what Johnny Bach used to refer to when I was playing with the Bulls and we were winning championships as the Doberman defense. That's right. You know, and for those that don't understand, you know, back then, Dobermans were considered guard dogs. They were the ones that, you know, were on the other side of the fence protecting people from jumping over the fence. And who did you have out on the front of the line? You know, the head of the snake was Michael and Scotty. Mm-hmm. Well, the head of the snake for this Bulls team is, is Lonzo and Caruso. So when you take one of those guys away, we know that the team on def- defensively without Lonzo Ball was average at best. 
So that means that you now have other guys that have to take humongous leaps defensively, most notably Zach Levine. Is his defense great? No. But it's better than he gets credit for when he puts forth the effort. Well, now with the big contract, we need to see that effort every single night because now he's the guy that needs to take the biggest leap on the defensive end of the floor now because Lonzo's out. There's no answers right now with Lonzo. So the question is, when can he get to the point where you can use enough horsepower that he's, he can actually play at game speed? We don't have an answer for that. Well, let's get to DeMar DeRozan, who had a season I'm not sure any of us expected. But he's 33, and many think it's going to be difficult for him to repeat that. What do you think? I think it will be. I think the season he had was, for, in my opinion, was spectacular. Never saw that coming. It's especially because as you talk about his age, the amount of miles on his body, you know, you just expected uh, a typical type season, which, you know, was going to, you felt that, okay, this, he's going to help this team win games, but we never thought at that level. But again, I, you know, as an analyst, think that for him to be able to repeat that is going to be pretty difficult. Does that mean he can't do it? No. But I, I would be really surprised if he did. Now, he set the expectation level. He's going to try to meet it or exceed it, and maybe he does. And because of the improvement of the Atlanta Hawks and the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics, for this team to get better, actually move up in the standings, he's going to have to have another spectacular season of us as analysts and fans scratching our heads going, this is incredible. How is he doing this? Because those other teams have gotten better. And George, I mean, I've been having conversations with guys. The Bulls could actually win more games than they did last season, but yet, be the seventh, eighth, or ninth seed, which means they're in the play-in game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which means that they've actually taken a step backwards instead of getting better. I said this when they made the myriad moves before last season, that they were good enough not to be good enough. In other words, to contend for a title. I think the same can be said now in that very tough Eastern Conference. They're good enough not to be good enough. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it because – in my opinion, the move of the offseason was not Donovan Mitchell going to Cleveland. That was huge. But it was Murray going to Atlanta. And I'm talking about of all 30 teams, I felt like that was the best move in the offseason. That's how good that kid is. Curious, what do you think of Billy Donovan? I think that Arturis tagged the right guy as far as what they wanted him to accomplish. They wanted him to accomplish, you know, changing the culture. They needed him to talk to the guys about accountability, hold guys responsible. I think he's now done that. I think they're now at that point where they wanted to be and what they wanted Billy to accomplish. Now, in my opinion, it's time for these guys aren't just playing for themselves. They're playing for Billy as well, because as we know, 
this year is the third year before your contract, right? This is, in our opinion, as analysts, this is the big year. This is when this team, hey, we're running it back. The core is still the same. We've added a few small pieces, as you talked about, and Dragic and Drummond. But now we got to see is, can, can Billy get those guys? Can he get that extra 10% out of them on every single night? You were fortunate to play under some pretty renowned NBA coaches. There was Doug Collins, Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich. Mm-hmm. Tell me a story I don't know about each of them and how they differed. But you're also not mentioning a guy that I felt probably knew the most basketball out of any of them is Bob Hill. So Doug Collins, unfortunately for Doug, we never really had the opportunity to develop a relationship as a player or as a person. I've actually developed a relationship with, with him as a person after the fact. You know, it's kind of funny. I run into him occasionally at the golf course or up in the Northbrook area because he's in town visiting his son, Chris, and, you know, hanging out with the grandkids. And we, we chat and have no problems, no ill will, nothing. But, you know, in my opinion, Doug's biggest drawback was he was just very emotional, wore his emotions on his sleeve. That's what made him such a good player, which, which made him so successful, is his ability to use those emotions to, to – you know, motivate himself to push himself. But sometimes those, those things that make you a really good player can hurt you as a coach. If you're more emotional than the players, they looked at as a slight on them. You know, it's just players have become too sensitive. And I think that was the biggest drawback for him was he coached with emotion, just like he played. And that didn't necessarily affect him how he coached, but if it affected, in my opinion, the relationships that he had with players. Phil was a different approach. He would get emotional at times, but he used those moments of emotion to really get your attention. Otherwise, he was, for the most part, pretty quiet in the background. And when I say mean by in the background, he didn't do a lot during practices. The practices were run by uh, Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. Phil, because of his back, couldn't like stand still for long periods of time. If he was going to be standing, he had to be moving. So a lot of times in our practices, Phil would just constantly be walking circles around the court because he couldn't stand still for long periods of time and just watch, observe. So he would be like, all right, Tex, you run uh, the first part of practice because we're going to go over the offense, which is the, you know, the, the, the famous triangle. And then, okay, now it's time to start doing defensive aspects. Johnny Bach, it's your turn. Johnny Bach would take over practice. And Tex was the voice. Johnny Bach was the voice. But on game day, there was one voice and one voice only. That was Phil. Bob Hill was the coach in San Antonio when I was my first year there when I got traded for Dennis. And I had never seen a coach so organized, so attentive, knowledgeable. But the thing that Bob Hill lacked was the trust in himself and the work that he had done prior to games. Just from a basketball mindset, talking about basketball IQ, there's never been a coach that I've played for. CM Newton, Doug Collins, Mike Dunleavy, Greg Popovich, Phil Jackson, that is on the same level from an IQ standpoint as Bob Hill. 
the biggest thing about pop was was two things. One, pop dumbed things down to where he made it easier, not harder. But for me, the biggest thing about pop was you really felt like pop cared about you as a person, as an individual. You weren't just a basketball player to him. You weren't just a guy trying to help him win games. When I got traded to San Antonio, and it, it started from day one. Now, so remember, at that point, he's the general manager. Bob Hill's the coach. As, as pissed off as I was, because you remember when I got traded, you know, that was the year Michael came back. We lost to Orlando in the second round of the playoffs. You knew what was coming. I always say this. I'm not a gambling man, but if I would have been a gambling man, I would have bet every penny I had that the Bulls were winning the championship. Every penny. And you don't understand how excited the, the, uh, that offseason was leading up to that season. And boom, I get traded a week before the season starts. So I get traded and it's just, that's demoralizing. I'm just, you know, I'm not happy. But all of a sudden we get to the Spurs offices. Bob's there, welcomes me, pops there. We're going to training camp the next day. That's remember that was the lockout and I get traded and all that stuff happens. So it's like, bang, bang, bang. Pop sits me down and he looks at me square in the eye. He goes, listen, we traded for you for a reason. The Bulls tried to give us other players, didn't want them. And whether this is BS or not, it doesn't matter. I feel like it's not because I always felt like Pop was honest with me. He was up, he was brutally honest. That's the type of thing I responded to. But he was brutally honest in a very tender, fatherly way. And he told me, he goes, we traded for you for a reason. We think that you, there are things you can do to help this team win that you were not allowed to do in Chicago. So as of today, the day before training camp started, you currently have no limitations on your skill set. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. If you think you can shoot the three, you shoot a, a thousand threes over the next four weeks during preseason games and practices. And I'm like, all right. That was who Pop was in a nutshell. Uh, another example, we're playing the Utah Jazz in the playoffs. I, you know, it's back that year we were doing the triple towers with me, Tim Duncan, and David Robinson. And when I mean brutally honest, he would just say, hey, we need you to guard Carl Malone. I can't have David guard him. I can't have Tim guard him. Or I'd prefer that they didn't guard him because we don't want them getting in foul trouble. He goes, you have six fouls. Use them wisely. But we also feel like you're our best option to guard Carl Malone. So we had a game where I think Malone scored like 36. And I'm in the locker room after the game. And I got both ankles in the buckets of ice ice on my elbows, ice on my knees. And let's also remember this quick sidebar. This is what I used to give Bill Cartwright a hard time for. I'd see him after games and I'm like, what is wrong with you, dude? And he just would always respond, you'll see. It'll catch up to you someday. <laughs> and I just, I remember, you know, 10 years later, I'm just like Bill Cartwright. I mean, basically covered from ice from the neck down, right? Pop comes over to me as I'm sitting there after he's talked to the team after the game and everybody's showering and, getting treatment and he sat down next to me and put his arm around me and he goes listen unfortunately tonight you hurt us and I was like what you know now you know as a player you're like wait a minute this guy's this guy's attacking me but then I just like all right hold on just continue to listen before you respond 
He goes, I know you can play better. The guys in this locker room know you can play better. And you, and for us to win this series, you have to play better. And I was like, well, you're right. So he got up and he said, forget about this. Let's get ready for the next game. Now the story's not over because finally I got to take a shower, get dressed, get on the bus. We get to the hotel as I'm getting off the bus, who's standing there waiting for me, but pop pulls me aside. And he says, throw your bag in your room. We're going to dinner. And I've already been to dinner with him many times. And pop had one rule when you went to dinner, whether it was individually with the group of guys, the team as a whole, when pop took you to dinner, the one rule was we talk about everything but basketball. That was the difference between Pop and any other coach I ever played for. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We resume with Will Purdue on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You know, when you were first drafted by Jerry Krause with the 11th pick in the first round of the 88 draft. I have to be honest with you. A lot of people here said, who? Who's Will Purdue? And yet you had a very good credentials at Vanderbilt. So when you came here, did you get the same sense? Like, why don't people know who I am? Oh, yeah. I don't want to use the word, you know, hatred. But I just, I remember when I came here and, you know, for my press conference, because I didn't come here straight from New York. I just remember that when I flew back here to have the press conference and everything, the negativity from all the questions, I was just like, holy cow. I mean, if, if I didn't know any better, these guys think I'm like a high school player or something. I got no skills. I got, I just got drafted 11 in the, in, 11th in the NBA draft. I mean, do they not understand, you know, what I've accomplished in college and what I've done and how I busted my ass to get here. And so I always felt like in this market, I was always having to climb uphill. It's just all part of the process. I learned a lot, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I always felt like in Chicago and I felt like part of that was, you know, the stories that were in the Tribune, the stories that were in the Sun-Times, kind of set the tone for what the fans thought of me as well. And then there's always the famous story of, you know, Michael refused to call me Will Purdue because, you know, I wasn't good enough to, to be considered a, a player from the Big Ten, so he called me Will Vanderbilt and, you know, all that crap. So, you know, and that bothered me. And it, quite honestly, it affected me, you know, as a player when I was here. I had to fight a lot of inner demons. And I always thought about what if I would have went to San Antonio with Greg Popovich beforehand and had that instead of what I dealt with. Because there was also the turmoil of the Greg, the uh, Doug Collins situation. I mean, there were a lot of people that said, hey, guess what? Will Purdue got Doug Collins fired. And I was like, what did I do? Huh? How was I the guy that got Doug Collins? You know, it was just, I always felt like I was kind of like the guy that if something went wrong, it was my fault internally i didn't handle it very well like you see these stories about people always say i wouldn't change a thing well i personally would change a lot you're part of that team that's on a growth spurt 
kept getting better and better. It finally finished off the Pistons and goes on to its first three-peat. But behind the scenes, it was a very different story, one of incredible competitiveness in practices with, of course, Michael Jordan in charge. And that came with plenty of tension at times, including fists. So tell me a story maybe that I don't know about all of this. What people don't know is that was commonplace, not necessarily guys getting punched, but as you just pointed out, the volatility, the competitiveness, the aggression, that's what made us so good. That was, that was commonplace, where guys had to be held back, pushing matches, shoving matches, you know, because, you know, we would go through all our, our skills work, offense, defense, guards down here, bigs here, forwards here individually. But you always ended practice with a scrimmage. But it was just a competitive atmosphere. And that atmosphere was set by Michael. And everybody tried to live up to those expectations, not only of him, but of the coaching staff, but of yourself. It was just a constant battle. Speaking of Jordan, what did you think of him as a baseball player? Because I believe you saw him play in Nashville. 1-1 one, one pitch to Michael. Yeah! Looping drive, it'll score at least one. Matola up with it, his throw to the plate is not in time, and Jordan delivers a two RBI single to right center field. You know, I, I obviously didn't have the best relationship with him. I wouldn't, I didn't hang out in his circles, but I do believe that I eventually gained his respect. I called the Nashville Sounds organization and I said, hey, I'm going to come down to Nashville. I'm going to go to the game. You know, mm -hmm. can I get some tickets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're like, yeah, absolutely, no problem. So what all the teams were doing in the minors was because of uh, what was going on with Michael playing right field, they would close the right field bleachers from a certain point out to the outfield, and then they would close a certain part of the outfield. So he comes to Nashville and plays a doubleheader, and there's me and my wife at the time the only two people in the right field bleachers because the rest of it was closed. And then occasionally when Michael would come out to warm up, he would throw a ball at me and I would catch it barehanded and throw it back to him. And then in between the two games, my wife and I went down in the dugout to talk to him and, you know, see how things were going. And, but the reason why I talk about that is, is that, you know, a year or two after I got traded, I'm still playing and, we belong to the same golf course up in Libertyville called Merrick Club. I'm still a member there. That to me, that's like that to me, that's heaven. But he was a member there. And I showed up to play one day when I was with the Spurs, you know, because I said I lived here in the summer and the offseason. They're like, hey, Michael's out there. And I'm like, where is he? He's like, well, he's out on, uh, he should be out on about 16 or 17 right now. He's playing with Kukoc. Kukoc was dumb enough to play with him for, you know, the money that Michael played for. <laughs> And so I just went out and sat on the patio and I saw him coming up the 18th fairway and I walked out on the 18th green and, you know, said hi to Tony. And, and that was like one of the first times I'd run into the Michael since I'd been traded off the bat, you know, outside of the basketball court, you know, we did the bro hug and talked for a minute. And then he just, I remember he tapped me on the shoulder, the chest and said, you know, unfortunately we traded the wrong guy. I remember interviewing Bill Wennington for this podcast. He told me, as a 14-year-old, 
he was already six feet nine. You had a growth spurt, as you mentioned, in high school. But you also needed a boost to keep playing. And it came from your mom. Yeah, so as I was telling you, you know, that sequence in, in uh, junior high school, seventh to ninth grade, you know, I was didn't make the team in seventh grade, worked really hard to make the team in eighth grade, still didn't play a lot. Well, in ninth grade, I made the team, but our practices were, were before school, not after, before school, because our coach was the shop teacher. And he always, because he was the shop teacher, he always had to have open class after school so that people could come and work on their shop projects. And I was in shop. So, you know, you learned how to make things. And the reason why we couldn't do practice after school was because he always had to have shop class open for an extra 90 minutes after school was over every day. So practice was from 5.30 to 7.30 a.m. And then he gave you 30 minutes to shower and get to your first class. And I was just like, I'm getting up every morning at 4.30. My mom was taking me to practice on her way to work, practicing in the morning. You know, I'm like, I'm just sitting on the bench watching games. I'm like, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. I'm done here. So it was after a game or something. My mom picked me up after work and I came out and I had all my stuff, my shoes, my towel, my, all my toiletries, you name it. I opened the trunk, threw everything in the trunk, got in the car, you know, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, why do you have all your stuff? And I just said, I quit. She goes, what? I said, yeah, I just, did, did you tell the coach you quit? I'm like, well, no, I'm going to tell him in class tomorrow because he's my shop teacher and I have shop tomorrow. And I had shop every day. She said, I remember specifically, we don't quit. I'm like, what do you mean we? I'm, you're not quitting. I'm quitting. She goes, no, <laughs> you are part of me. You represent me. You're not quitting. Because now you're letting yourself down and you're letting your teammates down. And I'm like, well, my teammates, I don't even play. Doesn't matter. You don't ever want to be known as a quitter. And she talked to me the whole way home. It's like, you know, 20 minute drive. And I just, I had no choice, but she's just like, you're going to get up in the morning. You're going to go to practice. You're going to act like nothing happened. And, and at the end of the season, we will talk and we will make a decision then about is basketball part of your future? I was like, okay. And I finished out the season and I decided that I wanted to keep playing. But the reason why I bring that up and, and I appreciate you asking that question was when my mom retired, and this was just from a, this is, I got my work ethic from my parents with most notably my mom. My mom, first of all, went to nursing school and graduated as a nurse. About halfway through her career, she decided she wanted to advance her, her knowledge and her degree and become a nurse practitioner, which is the next step. So she was, I want to do better. I just don't want to be a nurse. I want to now be a nurse practitioner. So she went back to school for two years at the University of Miami. And that's four hours from where we lived in Merritt Island. So for two years, she lived with a roommate away from her family and her family was basically her husband and her one son you know I'm an only child we would take turns driving back and forth so 
she would come back home every other weekend and then we would drive to Miami every other weekend. So for two years, and this was two years straight, there was no downtime. Um, I basically saw my mom on the weekends only. I mean, my mom worked the day before I was born. There's a, there's a black and white picture that my mom had that showed her as a nurse with this big old belly mopping a floor at the end of her shift. And then the other thing is, is that when back then, when you had a child, you got six weeks leave and that was it. And the day that that six weeks leave was up, my mom would drive to work, drop me off at the uh, caretaker's place where there were seven, six or seven other babies and then pick me up on the way home because she had to be back at work six days, six weeks and one day later, or she lost her job. But it was just the work ethic that she had. She didn't let me quit. My mom was the one that I kind of, you know, patterned that work ethic after. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Let me take you back to the NBA today. Is it a better game than when you played? Because it's definitely a different game. I think the game is more enjoyable from a general fan standpoint because it's more free-flowing, more action, higher paced. The rules are different to favor offense. You know, they've got the product that they've wanted. Ratings are up. All, all that stuff. But to me, a better game, to me, a more enjoyable game would be a combination of when I played and now. I think they should they should allow the game to be a little more physical in the paint. And I don't mean knocking guys down, but I mean arm bars, checking, hand checking, you know, stuff like that. I think that it's it's gone a little too far to the offensive side, I think it needs to be reeled back in a little bit. I think a combination of the two would make the perfect product. That's just like they're now they're they're talking about this in-season tournament. I don't I don't like it. I just I understand why they're doing it. I'm just not a big fan of it. Nor am I. Like father, like son. Yours is six eight. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but he's not exactly following in your footsteps. No, he's a lacrosse player. So he played basketball. I obviously coached all his teams as he grew up, you know, starting in fifth grade. 
sixth grade, you know, all through. And then when he got to high school, you know, I no longer coached his school teams because they had coaches, but he didn't love basketball. He liked basketball. He enjoyed it, but he didn't love it. And just by accident, he picked up a lacrosse stick had somebody that played it kind of give him the pointers one day and he kind of fell in love with it and he became a lacrosse player. So he started playing probably at about age 10 and eventually that became his primary sport, played in high school, was actually uh, recruited by division two, II, division three schools. But, you know, and to his credit, he came to me and just said, dad, I just don't think I want to play at that particular level with that type of intensity uh, on a regular basis. I still want to play, but, you know, I kind of want, I don't know how much I would enjoy it at that level, but he still is playing at uh, my, at, I still call it Miami of Ohio, even though they changed it to Miami university there in Oxford, Ohio, it's a club sport there. He's playing on the club team and yes, he, he plays defense um, he has the long stick. He's one of the few players at six eight that's actually you know bigger than the uh, stick pole that he plays with. That's amazing. And not only is he six eight, but he's also two hundred twenty five pounds. He's a big kid. <laughs> that's, I can't envision a lacrosse player at six eight and two hundred twenty five pounds. Well, he's and he's. It's not like he's you know he's thick. He's he's developed. Obviously, you seem to like your role as an analyst and a commentator, both on the Bulls broadcasts, on the NCAA tournament, the ESPN. Do you have your sights set on something else to do? No, I don't. I enjoy it. In late game situations, would you, at this point right now, would you trust the ball in Dragic's hands or Kobe's hands? Well, it's Dragic. Dragic. I mean, let's see, what he, yeah. let's see what he has left in the tank physically, but just in terms of yeah. the body of work. But that's also one of the things that we talked about towards the end of the year, that 8-12 to 12 spot, we talked about they, they needed to make some serious improvement. I enjoy the challenges. I enjoy, you know, breaking plays down. Would I like to be a coach? Yeah, there's a part of me that's constantly talking about coaching and plays and occasionally having a conversation with Billy after a practice or one of the assistants about, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You know, and I still could get into it, but I'm just like, you know what? I think my aspirations have changed. I'm 57 years old. I've kind of gotten, you know, used to that life, the ability to do that. I just don't know if I would really enjoy all the aspects and sacrifices that come with being a coach. And it would also take away time for my wife. You know, I, I got remarried four years ago. And that's quite honestly, if I got into coaching, I would only coach one team. That's it. The Chicago Bulls. That's it. And the people at NBC Sports Chicago have been very flexible as well. If something happens on the day of a, a game that I'm scheduled to work, you know, because I don't work all 82, we just switch it out and they're like, no problem. So, you know, you kind of get accustomed to that flexibility, the ability to, you know, make changes on the fly. And, you know, I'm just very fortunate that I enjoy what I do. Now, the only thing I would ask is, if the Bulls could go like 62 and 20, it would make my job even more enjoyable. Good luck with that. <laughs> you know, because then you're coming to game to a game every night, 
knowing that there's a really, really good chance that they're going to win and we're going to have fun watching the game and we're going to talk about it afterwards and everybody's going to be happy. And, but unfortunately, that just doesn't work that way. I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for basketball, what would you have been? I would be doing probably what I'm doing right now, but probably in a different, a different context because I seriously did not think about playing professionally until I went into my senior year of college. And towards the end of my junior year, I started seeing these people that I didn't recognize. I remember one day I asked the manager, I was like, hey, who are those guys? And he looked at me and he goes, they're NBA scouts. And I remember going, who are they here? Who are they looking at? And the guy looked at me and he goes, you dumbass. <laughs> but I was already entrenched in the communication major. I was always do, already doing the internships. I was like, when I graduate, I'm either going to get in, you know, I'm going to be a sports anchor or I'm going to be uh, a DJ or I'm going to be, I'm going to, I did some internship stuff with advertising. You know, I, I pretty much had a, it was broad, but I kind of was, this is the route I'm going. And then that all changed. And so I, I joke that I'm doing exactly what I went to school for, but I took a 14-year a break, but I felt like I would be doing exactly what I'm doing. Maybe not as an analyst aspect, but more of a sports anchor, you know, just doing the sports five nights a week and or being on the radio or maybe being in advertising, but having a real nine-to-five job. You know, even though that's not nine to five, but that's a, that's a real job. Well, this is a great pleasure having reconnected with you, Will. And what an intriguing and revealing interview this has been. I really appreciate your career with the Bulls and your keen analysis of their games. Continued success. And thank you, Will Perdue, for telling me a story I don't know. George, thank you. And it was enjoyable, revealing. It was kind of entertaining for me to bring up some old stories. So hopefully people learned a little bit about something about me. They were able to pull back the covers and feel like maybe now when they see me on TV doing pregame or the postgame, they know me a little better and they know why I act the way that I do or say the things that I say. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, Westwood One Sports, and the Birmingham Barons for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>